Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Uh, today on our show, we have Kate Ryder. Kate started her career uh, as a journalist with The New Yorker and The Economist and uh, even helped former Goldman Sachs CEO and Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson uh, write his memoirs. And as her friends uh, started having kids, she began to notice significant gaps in the healthcare system. She became a first-time VC-backed entrepreneur, raising $2 million to launch Maven, mavenclinic.com, a telehealth startup which provides modern maternity benefits to individuals and, uh, to, in, to, and to employers or to individuals through employers. Um, through Maven, you can log in, find a variety of practitioners, chat with, say, a doctor or a therapist or a lactation consultant, and um, boom, you're being cared for from your home or wherever you can find the privacy to have the chat. And the fees are very reasonable to start. And again, like I noticed, uh, like I noted, um, Maven has a relationship with companies which are providing the benefit to their clients as well. So for some, it just might be free. Um, Maven has raised $5 million and is bringing its convenience and efficiency to women's healthcare experiences across the United States already. They are certified nationally. And as we discussed at the end of the show, um, would even have their eye on uh, bigger international markets uh, when, when the time comes. Uh, I am your host, Jeremy Scheinwald. I am the founder of the Mission Driven Group and a board member and volunteer podcaster for Venture for America, VFA. Um, VFA is a fellowship program which attracts enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and help revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America or to support our work, you can visit VentureForAmerica.org. And I should note that earlier this month, Venture for America announced the launch of a new executive and residence program. The program will will bring top executives from key tech companies, including Slack, LinkedIn, and Yelp, among others, to VFA cities for a year-long residency to serve as resources to the innovation entrepreneurial communities. Leslie Miley, former head of engineering at Slack, is the first EIR and will launch and lead the program. For more information, go to ventureforamerica.org slash EIR apply. That's ventureforamerica.org EIR apply. And if you enjoy our show, tell someone, a friend, a relative, people you pass on the street, just tell someone. Um, like us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our audience. You can follow me on uh, Twitter at Jeremy Scheinwald. I am warmly accepting uh, LinkedIn connections. Um, but enough about me and us. Uh, you're here for Kate. Here is Kate Ryder of Maven, mavenclinic.com, um, telling her story of her, uh, telling the story of her entrepreneurial journey. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. 
Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Kate, thanks so uh, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So I read that your family is quote full of entrepreneurs, and that your father was pretty influential in um, you know in inspiring you towards your entrepreneurial path. I mean, so just tell us about your entrepreneurial entrepreneurial ecosystem growing up and, and its impact on you. Yeah, so my dad's an entrepreneur, so he's definitely kind of the number one influence from that perspective. But I also grew up with an aunt who um, ran a business doing focus groups for large CPG companies in pharma. And I used to, I helped both my dad and my aunt at various points when I was younger to make some extra cash. Um, my grandmother is an entrepreneur. She has, she's still going. Um, she has an interior decorating business. Oh, wow. uh, and then was she available to be on the show. And yeah, she, I know. Is she New York based. She, she would love it. She's tr- she's working out how to use Facebook right now so <laughs> but um but no she so she used to be in kind of magazines when when we were kids um so so she's an entrepreneur and then both my grandfathers were entrepreneurs so oh, wow. one of my grandfathers was a doctor but he opened his own practice um and then the other one uh, used to actually be in the CIA and then ran a real estate business so wow. I have yes it's all over my what was your, what was your dad's pool. business so my dad was it was this early big data business I guess where he went to supermarkets um, and he got the frequent shopper data from all the kind of frequent shopper cards and then built a platform to to run kind of an analysis on how to cross promote and drive sales for certain products and then sold those insights to CPG companies and then consulted for them on top of it wow I, I, I thought when I was a kid, I, I, I told him once that I'd rather put cigarettes out in my eyes than ever work for him because it was the most <laughs> boring thing I could ever think of. Um, but, you know, now that I am a little bit older and more mature, I really respect it. <laughs> yeah, it takes all kinds. Of, you know, different people have different <laughs> passions. Uh, so, so you started your career in journalism, um, you know, entrepreneur now. Did you just not have, like, the idea when you graduated, or was it, you know, too soon for you when you graduated? So I think the linkage between journalism and entrepreneurship is that creation impulse. Um, So I've always had that, and that's, I think, what ties both together. But I I wanted a a life of excitement. I wanted to go be the female Hemingway um, in Europe when I graduated, and so... So that's what I did. I moved to Spain um, when I graduated from Michigan. Got drunk and punched people. Got drunk, punched people, learned mm. Spanish. Yeah. I actually got up every morning at 6 a.m. and wrote for two hours oh, before wow. I, I would go to work. And so um, so that was my first foray into trying to kind of live the dream. Uh, and uh, and eventually ended up working. I think my, ver- my first journalism job was at The New Yorker. Yeah, so how do you... How do you get a first journalism job at The New Yorker? Like, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, so... Um, I had nannied for one of the editors when I was 16. <laughs> That's how you get it. Okay, so if anyone's listening and you want to work with The New Yorker, nanny for an editor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so you leave The New Yorker, which to me is like, you know, a, a, like a dream job and, and to work with I mean, another potential dream job, working with Hank Paulson, um, former Treasury Secretary and uh, and former CEO of Goldman Sachs on his memoir. Um, obviously, like a pretty fascinating opportunity, but also like one with a finite lifespan. Was there any... Was it an easy choice to go work on that? Yeah, so the, I was—I um, had just turned in my dissertation from grad school um, the day that Lehman Brothers went under, so September 15th, 2008. Um, I, I 
before grad school had worked at the New Yorker and then after grad school kind of had begged to ha- get my job back because there was just a hiring freeze across journalism and I was trying to get into harder reporting but that there was just I was not getting traction anywhere so um, so I had helped this Wall Street Journal writer research a book on um, uh, Rupert Murdoch's takeover of the journal called War at the Wall Street Journal, Sarah Ellison. Um, and so she was trying to get my resume into the Wall Street Journal to get a job there, but there was this hiring freeze. So I'm sitting at the New Yorker one day. Uh, this was in early 2009. And I get a call, uh, a voicemail actually, from Hank Paulson's ghostwriter saying, do you want to come interview for this position? I got your resume from an editor at the journal. Um, so I interviewed for it the next week and was in D.C. kind of the week after that. <laughs> So, like, I, I used to write speeches um, for an ambassador, and I was always sort of shocked that the ambassadors kind of took what I wrote and read it. Yeah. And, like, and is that, like, when you have a ghostwriter, is that, like, how much of that's Hank? How much of that is his ghostwriter? How much of that is you? <laughs> so, great question. There's two types yeah. of, um, of, of I think, public figures who write who write memoirs. One, they, they just let, they read it. They let you do whatever you want. Um, they give you really high-level guidance, and then they let you go. And then there's Hank and a few other people who was involved in every single word of the book because it was his legacy on the line. I mean, he was being ca- called the bailout king at that point. Right. Um, and a lot of people didn't understand TARP and 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 what and the financial crisis and what had just happened. So he kind of threw all of his energy into the book. So it was definitely a very, very, very intense process because also if you think about when memoirs were written about historical time kind of 200 years ago, they're all fiction because mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you recreate those memories? With Hank, we had call logs, we had meeting notes. We had, you know, 50 people to interview on the record. So there was a ton of primary sources and then Hank, and then we would kind of cut it and, and write it and then Hank would rewrite it and then we would rewrite it and then he would rewrite it. And it was a year of, I think I worked every day one month there in the month of July, I worked every single day. But I have to imagine that's a better way to write a memo, like a more enjoyable way to write a memoir, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was great to have him involved because I think later I, I went and worked at The Economist afterwards, and I remember we were having a lunch with John Mack, um, who you know was CEO, CEO yeah. of Morgan Stanley, and uh, and so somebody asked him, one of the editors of The Economist <clears throat> asked him whether Hank's book was accurate according to his memory um, compared to Andrew Ross Orkin's book, Too Big to Fail. And right. he definitely said that Hank's, you know, was was 95% of the way there. And every other book that he read during the during that time was was not not as detailed. Huh. Uh, Sorkin's book was like 700 pages. Yeah, exactly. And it was, and it was, it was great. And it was yeah. this page turner and Hank and, and, and Andrew Ross Orkin are, are very close and Hank right. helped him with that book. But then when it really came to Hank's turn to write his legacy, I mean, we it was so detailed right. the, going through all of these documents to make sure that we were accurate. Right. I think we could have two episodes. I could talk to you about the book writing <laughs> process, but I guess we should we should we should move on to Maven at some point. But uh, so I mean, you mentioned working the Economist, um, and you know, I'm curious. I'm, okay, like to me, that's like a black box because there's no like writers on the. I mean, how do you even how do you find your way to the Economist? So I think similar to, and this is again a major link between journalism and entrepreneurship. So many of these jobs, you you ha- kind of have to go meet the right people. So it could be a cold email to someone, or it could be, um, you know, I think I had a friend of a friend of a friend was an economist writer, and so I ended up um, having a phone call with her, and then she 
passed my resume to the you know the bureau chief in New York, and then I had a meeting with him. Um, and so it was it was just kind of making those connections and, and getting to the right person. Um, and so I started as an intern there, and then eventually you know just became one of the the stringers. So I, I was writing from New York, from Southeast Asia, um, from London. So it was a, it was an amazing two and a half years. Okay, last journalism question. Um, <clears throat> so when you're working for the Economist, you need to like know about you know rebels in Burkina Faso and diversification of the economy of you know, yeah. Liberia or something like that. Do you yeah. know about everything that like, or is it just like you got, you're on the Liberia beat and that's it? So it would, yeah, you, you pretty much, every time you write an article, you have to become pretty obsessed with the topic and know, and know all, all components because the, the, the great thing about The Economist is that you get pretty high level access. So, you know, you, I remember I wrote in an article about American Express and their stock performance one year and, and credit card regulation. And, you know, I got a meeting with the American Express CEO, Ken Chenault at the time. You know, any other publication, you're not going to get that type of meeting. Right. And so, um, so yeah, so you, you do you do have to read a lot and read fast so that you, you can speak far and wide on various subjects. So while you're at The Economist, you, you launch a little side hustle. Um, a travel company creating group tours to the Chinese market, and you chuckle about it now, and you've, quote, you've called it, quote, unquote, a total failure, but, but I mean, a, a learning experience as well. Um, like, what, 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 what led you to, what insight were you trying to, like, exploit at that point? So at that point, I had realized I did not want to be a, a journalist any longer um, for a lot of different reasons that we can also go into another time. <laughs> um, and so I was looking for, you know, I was trying to figure out what, what it was I was going to do. And um, I, I, was, I had written this story about the online Chinese travel market, and I was in Hong Kong. Um, one weekend and I was telling my friend about what an amazing business opportunity it is and so he was like well let's start it together it's kind of like all right you know my dad my dad started a business and I've grown up around entrepreneurs like maybe maybe we can do this mm-hmm. um, and so it was that was the the moment where it was a total failure I mean not least because he lived in Hong Kong and I lived in Singapore so right. <laughs> you know a little problem with that <laughs> um, uh, but it was my first <clears throat> taste of entrepreneurship and um, and it really made me realize that this was exactly what I wanted to do. She said, I still think the idea was great, but we were, we were pretty clueless when it came to operations. Could you go back now, now that you've got a, a company, could you go back now and make that a success? I would have to have the right partners to tackle the Chinese market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, ter- it's a tricky market for sure. <laughs> so you managed to trash transition to, uh, to, to VC, which is a... Uh, like you're the master of breaking into these worlds, I guess. Uh, pretty unorthodox transition. Um, how did you how did you make the transition happen? So that was just sheer persistence. Um, I had probably over a hundred meetings um, with people in almost every industry because at that point I, I knew what the end game was, which was to start a business. Uh, but I knew I needed a bridge to doing that. So um, actually, Hank Paulson had was was trying to be helpful um, in the financial sector and introducing me to a few or making some calls on my behalf um, in London. Uh, but it was you know the first eurozone crisis. So again, I was in this market where there was a hiring freeze everywhere. And then I think maybe like the 105th meeting, um, I I met this partner at a VC firm who had a soft spot for journalists, and he hired me within two days. And again, it was one of those kind of, it all worked, and I was working there within a week or two after about six months of pain. And 
are there any investments that you're you're particularly nostalgic about? You're like, oh, I got we invested in that one. Um, so I worked really closely with an amazing entrepreneur, Zach Sims, who runs Code Academy here in oh, yeah. New York. Sure. So that was one of the first uh, things I did when I got there. So he's a, he's a good friend today, and um, and it's an amazing business. Um, I also worked on Artbinder, which is uh, it's a it's a company that builds inventory management systems for art galleries in the art world, and it, it makes basically the process of selling art and viewing art and, and and, um, and buying art easier at fairs and, and whatnot. Uh, so Alexandra Shemla runs that business. Um, she's a great entrepreneur here in New York. So, uh, so and then you know Greg Marsh from One Fine Stay is a friend. Um, I don't know if you know One Fine Stay. It's kind of like name. an upscale Airbnb. Um, but yeah, I, I, that was one. Of, the best thing about Index was was that I got to meet all of these incredible entrepreneurs in their portfolio, and a lot of them are mentors, and some of them are even investors today and, and friends. So you, as a VC, kind of just get, catch the fever. Uh, um, you know, you're, you become your next step stop is entrepreneurship itself. Yeah, I mean that was always <laughs> the whole interview process with uh, with Index was that I was going to eventually be leaving and starting a business. Um, so there was never any secret about that um, in my t- during my two years there, and um, and I definitely tried three different businesses while I was there that weren't quite right with various partners and various industries. And uh, when I was covering digital health and and trying on this other health business that's really what maven grew out of um, a combination of of looking a lot at the industry but then separately being really passionate about it because a bunch of my friends started having kids at that point and I think by the time every every woman has gotten to 30 there's been some health experience that they've had that has been subpar, whether it's getting access to contraception or having pregnancy scares or, you know, not being able to go see a doctor or find the right doctor when they want to. Um, and then, you know, be starting a family and becoming the chief medical officer of the home, that's when healthcare becomes a, a weekly experience. And so th- there just seemed an incredible opportunity and kind of a no-brainer. Um, uh, opportunity to create a patient-centric business that was for the female consumer um, in digital health. And so I'm realizing now patient-centric is revolutionary in healthcare. <laughs> um, and so I, I, you know, I, I, that's what we do is we build the best products for women. What's interesting about that is, you know, you raised, I, I have this now, you raised about a little over $2 million. Um, I, a little more than that. <clears throat> a little a little over that before you launched. So oh, before since, I launched, yeah. yeah. So since then, I think you're now up to what, about five? Or uh, yeah, about that. Okay. But before you launched, and so what's what's really curious about that, because we've had a lot of women on the show, we're very proud of it, and um, and um, I hear from women all the time, it's like, it's tough for a woman to raise money from VCs, and here you are, a first-time entrepreneur with a, a female-oriented product, and and I, I think from what I read, and correct me if I'm wrong, sort of like, you know, not, it, the product isn't fully developed at that point, so, um, how did you do it? What, what did the VCs see? Well, I got good practice in rejection uh, when I was trying to transition from journalism to venture capital. I had all those meetings. Um, so early fundraising was exactly the same. I think that's why they say you really have to love what you do. And, and usually it's mission-driven entrepreneurs that are last man standing because it's hard, particularly in the beginning, because you need people to buy into your vision. And so I, I think, you know, sometimes if you just hang on long enough and, and continue to meet more people, you'll, you'll find those needles in a haystack. And then as you build a business and as you get good indicators that, you know, this is this has a successful business model, you know, consumers love the product, then it, it does get a little easier. But it's, I think, you know, women's businesses and digital health businesses in the early stages are always pretty hard. Right. And I mean, you mentioned how hard it is. Like, what, how did you, 
why did you feel like you were ready to tackle this project? Like it's, it's uh, even though it's, um, you see the problem, um, you know, you're building a, a obviously the, it's a consumer focus on women, but it's a tech product and so, you know, in, in many ways. Like, were you, how did you know you'd be ready to manage like, development of a tech platform so you're never ready right. <laughs> I, I think um you know naivety is in a, a first-time entrepreneur's best friend um i had two great early kind of founding team members and partners in the business who are engineers uh zach zaro and Susie grange so zach's our cto and Susie leads front end and um and 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 product, and so between the two of them, uh, and then Jason um, Garrett is our is our iOS developer. So he's been, been with us, you know, from those early early days. So actually, my core founding team were engineers, and um, we still, you know, get drinks and talk about those early days. And and so I, I you know, just found people I trusted and, and relied on them. So it's been almost three years. Can you, can you give us a sense of the growth and of, of of Maven? Yeah. So we started. We so we came to market in April 2015. So it's been three years since I quit venture capital and then kind of played around for a bit and then eventually raised money and then built built a product. So we've been in the market for a little under two years. Um, so we came to market as a, a just a, a telemedicine business where women could book instant video appointments with healthcare providers. So doctors, nurse practitioners, therapists, lactation consultants, nutritionists. Um, and so that product is still runs today. And, and we've seen, you know, triple digit growth over the last year, um, you know, high t- triple digit growth, which is which is exciting. But then the, the big thing that we've we we did last year is we became a national business so that you could get prescriptions same day. And that allowed us to launch Maven Maternity, which is our 15 month maternal health product. So, you know, one of the craziest things in, in healthcare is when you look at women's health in all these different areas, it's just so underserved. And even at the corporate level, you look at maternity costs that companies pay. And it's typically one of the top healthcare claims. So diabetes, pregnancy, cancer, heart disease, asthma, those are usually the top five. And you have a lot of different solutions, whether they're from the payers, whether they're from innovative kind of digital health companies, tackling a lot of these problems. And there's just been nothing in maternity. And so um, so we built a, nine, a, a, a program that's nine months of pregnancy, six months of postpartum, that's very real in, with the patient experience where we, we help a woman and we, we support her as she's going through her pregnancy, you know, offering therapy, nutrition support, physical therapy, we offer data transparency on C-section rates of her hospital because the C-section rate in America is really high. We identify and support high-risk pregnancies, so we're helping employers save money there. But then in the six months after a woman has a baby, you know that's when care falls off a cliff. And I know you mentioned your wife's a pediatric sleep counselor. Um, that is, you know, as, as you know firsthand, there's, there's not a lot of support. Right. And, and there's not a lot of support then when a woman transitions back to work and is meant to continue apace with, with, her, with her career. And so we offer not only postpartum support with a lot of the different postpartum providers, but then back to work counseling so that, um, so that a woman's fully supported when she goes back and, and physically, emotionally, um, and has the convenience of our telemedicine service to have on-demand pediatric appointments, on-demand, you know, therapy appointments. Um, and, you know, because that's where the wage gap occurs is right when a woman starts a family. Right. It, it, it seems to me like you're someone who, who knows how to, you know, find your way and open doors. I mean, how how receptive are companies to this message? Are you, are you walking and, and it's like, yeah, I get this. We oh, yeah, no, it's it's been, I think that's been why this product is now taking off in, in, a, in a big way. I mean, we're, we're doing two rollouts this week to some pretty big names. Um, basically, uh, 
the back to work part, a lot of people are rethinking their parental leave policies right now, and there's just nothing there. And so the back to work part really resonates with a lot of employers with like 2,000 to call it 10,000 um, employees. But then for big employers like Amazon, GE, you know, maternity is their number one healthcare cost, and no one's ever gone to them and said, hey, here's how we can save you some money by actually delivering just a better healthcare experience and providing data transparency to women um, about their options in the hospital. So you, you've got 700 doctors on the platform? Almost might, 800 now, actually. Okay. I mean, what's, what's their incentive to be on the platform? So the most amazing part of my job is the just the, the mission ac- across the provider network that, that we see. And so a lot of them are on the front lines of how underserved areas of women's health are, whether it's, you know, pregnancy loss. So there's 6.7 million births every year, or sorry, 6.7 million pregnancies every year in America and only 4 million births. So, you know, what what's happening to a lot of those women when, when they experience a loss? There, there's no yeah. support there. And particularly if they're working and they're in really competitive jobs. So, you know, that's a, a lot of, and every type of women's health provider will be on the front lines there. OB, pediatrician, um, you know, therapist. And so, they're so passionate about um, about delivering better care to women during this time, and and so that's been incredible. So that's that's not you know I would say mission is one of the top incentives of our provider community. But then more practically, they ninety eight percent of our providers are women. They're they're moms themselves, so they get to work from home. They get to see patients without all of the bureaucratic constraints of charting. You know we we do a little bit of charting, but it's not you know you see a patient for ten minutes and then you'd write a chart for twenty, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot of hospital work. So, uh, so it's also just you know pure and unadulterated patient-provider relationships too. Right. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. You told Business Business Insider, uh, quote, I think healthcare is a very different experience for a woman than a man. It requires trust with a healthcare provider and more of a relationship-based model than a commodified model. It's interesting you, you, you're talking about that relationship base where we'd think that, you know, like a telehealth model would be less personal. How, how, do, you, how do you make that remote client feel that, you know, love, so to speak? Honestly, that's the providers themselves most of the time. Um, the dream is that, you know, the technology just fades away and we've, we, you know, the provider has all the information they need up front. The patient, is, you know, has been able to ch- been, be matched with the optimal provider for them. And then it's, 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 um, it's two people talking, a, a medical expert who happens to be most of them a woman, a woman who might have gone through the experience of starting a family herself or the experience of needing birth control or having questions. And then there's a female patient who, um, you know, wants to be heard and understood and ultimately delivered a, a solution to. So I would imagine that convenience is a huge selling point. You know, I, I don't think my doctor has ever been on time. Now, the grand, granted, I'm still kind of going to my pediatrician here and there. Um, <clears throat> that's sort of not a joke. It's kind of sad. So how do you ensure that your doctors are on time for a virtual appointment? So we have no problems with the doctors. The patients, okay. on the other <laughs> hand, some of them don't show up. Um, no, we actually, it was kind of funny. In the first few months of the business, or as a provider, you know, we, we're always, um, we, we highly vet our providers, but we're always accepting new ones after they go through the process. So when a provider comes on, 
on for the first time, some of the providers get so worried about the patients that don't show up. And, and so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really not an issue with the providers. Occasionally, if, it, if it's a midwife or an OBGYN and they might be on call you know, to deliver a baby, then they'll cancel on the patient and we'll just match the, the patient with somebody else if, if, they, if they still want that or they wait for the provider. Right. And I, I noticed, um, and I, maybe the costs have changed, but there was in the same Business Insider article, um, you know, journalist was like raving about the about the service. Um, but it seemed like a fairly relative, like a fairly low price point. At, I think ten to fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. And this person was talking about how this how the doctor referred her out after that. I mean, doesn't stickiness become critical to your model? So there's, you know, with telemedicine, they say about seventy percent of appointments you don't need to go to the doctor. Um, with with that specific incident, that's exactly what our model, you know, one of the benefits of our model is we have a tight network of excellent women's health providers that are very patient-centric. And so she got exactly what she needed from Maven, which was she she had a convenient appointment. I think she got a prescription through it maybe. So she, yep. she you know. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yep. And then, um, but then yeah. she needed to actually go get tests run and needed to find a doctor because she had just moved to New York. And so she didn't know where to turn. That's one of the big issues um, in OBGYN. You know, how do you find a good one? And then, uh, and so then, you know, she recommended it. I actually, you know, had a baby seven months ago and I found my OBGYN through the Maven Network. Mm. And I was specifically looking for a doctor in New York who had a low C-section rate. Um, who was, you know, casual and and could wouldn't worry me, and uh, and so yeah, I, I absolutely love my OBGYN. Um, so, like another quote from you here, I, I appreciate this tremendously. I think this is in many reasons why we started this podcast to try and show people the real side of entrepreneurship. You said. It's become sexy to work at startups, but in reality, it couldn't be more unsexy. Um, can you share the unsexy details of working at Maven? I mean, I am always calculating my screen time. <laughs> how how often am I looking out the window and like seeing a tree? <laughs> and how often am I staring at a computer and a phone and is pathetic? Um, you know, and on top of that, I have a marriage, I have a child. So um, just to give you an example, over the last two weekends, on Sunday, I got up at 8 a.m. I worked until 1 p.m. You know, I was a little bit hungover from the night before, but I, I had to get something done. Um, so yeah, it's just the constant barrage of of work, and you have to do it at all hours, no matter what, because this is your baby. Right. And you know, how big is how big is your team now? About 12? Is that right? We're about 15 now. 15. And how? I mean, how do you think your your team would describe your approach to management? Well-intentioned. Well-intentioned? <laughs> what does that mean? You know, with a big smile, well-intentioned. So um, this was something that one of my investors said to me was that your management is an art and you're going to be terrible at it for the first three years. And so uh, I've taken that to heart. And um, and I think, you know, I, I, if I think about managers I've had in my own career that I've looked up to and I've respected, you know, they, they have the time to like go over work, give really detailed feedback. And, and, and really it's a, it's, a, it's a much more focused relationship than I can personally give anyone at, at Maven. So... Um, so I think that's, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're spread really thin. And so it's really hard to master the art of, of management as well as, you know, do the 20 things that you're supposed to be doing. And so as a result, I wish I could be a better manager, sit down with everybody all the time and understand, 
you know, really talk through what they've done and, and um, also just even career development. And I, tr- I try um, and I definitely get get to stuff like that at least once or twice a year. But it's just as an entrepreneur, you're, you're getting, you know, you're, you're getting hit from at all angles to, to do various things. And it just it, it doesn't leave as much time for management. With, with the growth of the company, though, you have to be divesting something. So what are you what are you what are you giving up and what are you keeping? So uh, we just brought on a new VP of sales, which I am so excited about because with our corporate sales, I used to open up and close every single meeting and account. And now I am just a closer. I'm no longer doing that. And it's amazing. <laughs> so that, that's, you know, you know, you gotta break the bottleneck in order to, in order to continue growing. Exactly, obviously. and then it allows me to really focus on product um, and brand for the moment uh, because that's where you know really it's it's going back to your point about stickiness. I mean, our our Maven Maternity Program, our, it's it's this incredible opportunity to actually deliver much needed healthcare. Um, you know, and and give, given that I just went through the experience myself, my son's seven months old, I have a lot of very distinct product ideas that I want to see. Um, you know, come to light because maternity care is is very much stuck in the 1950s. Right. So, I mean, you're, you know, you just said the sort of unglamorous, unsexy entrepreneurship can actually be a little bit lonely at times. Like, who do you, who do you bounce your, your ideas off of? Uh, is, is your, is your, is your dad your go-to or you're like, no, no, you're. Sometimes if I, if I need wisdom, yeah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. hey, the world's not going to end tonight. <laughs> it's all going to be okay. <laughs> you know, he's, he's great for that. Um, no, it's, it's other entrepreneurs. So I think that there is um, a really tight knit community and, and a relationship of trust among entrepreneurs because at times it can be so crazy and it can be so lonely that um, that I've been I've been uh, so overwhelmed by the support that I've gotten from um, from my ecosystem um, just you know the other the other day and in, in December I got a note from Shanlin Ma who's the CEO of Zola so it's an amazing um, company you know they do it's like the modern wedding registry um, and she was just you know she's they're much farther along they're much bigger than us and she just said you know if any if I can be helpful to you um, please let me know I mean I've looked at the the statistics of women who get past Series A and beyond, and and you know you look at the funding landscape, and seed is getting a little easier for women, but you know raising later stage capital is is still really tough. And so she said, if I can be a mentor to you in any of that, please let me know. And I don't even know her that well, and so she is. I've emailed her a bunch of times since then, and um, and so you know and and Ellie Kaplan from NeuroTrack. Um, NeuroTrack is a company that slows. Um, or d- does a detection of early onset Alzheimer's so that you can better treat it. Um, she's also, you know, just an incredible person. I can pick up the phone and, and call her at any time. Henry Davis, who's the president of Glossier, um, we worked at Index together. So we kind of went transitioned both from venture capital in London to the New York tech ecosystem in, in management roles. Um, so I, I just have these go-to people uh, where I can say, Listen to what happened today. What would you do? So when you when you call your dad, thinking the world's going to end, I mean, are these always in hindsight like, yeah, that was the world wasn't going to end. It just felt that way. Are there things that are actually like, like threatening to the company right now that you're like, well, these are stressful times. That are- no, it was like in the early days. You know, it was like the first time I ever fired someone. It was that is brutal. It was brutal. Yeah. Um, yeah, and brutal. so that was one of those moments where I thought I, I just I didn't know how I could do it. Um, and so I, I took a lot of kind of senior advice from both my dad um, and some of our investors who you know run companies before uh, are kind of like, okay, you're going to do this a lot more, so get used to it. Right. So so it's it, it, it's things like that or 
you know, a, a product feature that you launched like didn't take on that you, like you wanted it to. But but really, it's I think um, what's been interesting over the last few years is. I have learned to manage the stress more and there is no such thing as an end of end of life situation because this is just business and you know this business is business and so I think it's really important I think for entrepreneurs sanity is to know that at the end of the day you know startups do kind of their personal and their business but it is just business at the end of the day and I have a lovely group of friends and a marriage and a really healthy happy son and so that's that's also, you know, sanity, and it gives me sanity. <laughs> My strategy for whenever I have to, fire, have to fire someone, it's only happened a few times, is just to sob uncontrollably until they're comforting me. <laughs> right. That's, that's the way it is. You know, just, just a good idea. <laughs> don't worry. I'm going to be your, your, I'm gonna be okay. You're the, you're the problem. Right. right. Yeah. That's, I, I'll, I'll remember that for yeah. the next one. It's, 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 it's actually kind of true. I, I, it's a horrible, horrible experience. My dad was an entrepreneur, and I remember sort of like being a kid and thinking, maybe from like watching the Jetsons where George would get fired every episode and thinking like, wow, you could like yell at someone and tell them what to do. And then, of course, you have to do it for the first time. You're just like, God, that's all. Like, I, don't, I don't wish that upon my worst enemy. No. I mean, I, I had a friend who worked for Groupon in Paris, a oh. rocket internet company, and his job was essentially to fire people five oh. five times a week. God. So how he, do you do that? I, get, yeah, I, I don't know I how to do that. that. What was that like? George he left Clooney? six months later. It was like yeah. a great experience, and then he left. There's that George Clooney movie. Was it Up in the Air about the guy who had to lay everyone off? I haven't seen it, but I mean, I, oh, I, right, I, yeah. I should watch it to vicariously <laughs> experience that right. horrible life. Right. So, so I mean, so what are the what are the obstacles to, to Maven's growth at, at this point? So, I think actually we've just come through a lot of them. So, there's a lot of regulatory checkboxes that you need to go through, and it's um, you know when you nationalize a telemedicine network, there's medical licenses per state that you have to deal with, and every Sounds state horrible. has a different regime of uh. checkboxes. <laughs> so, you know one state you have to fax fingerprints and you can't nothing's digital it's all fax based and then they lose things and you're like what um so that has been that's that just took you know 18 months to really do and it cost a lot of money so we're we're finally just through that we we finished it in the fall do you have to be in in every state? Like, could you have said, "Look, we'll be an operator in everywhere but Hawaii and Alaska"? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you sell into companies, you know, companies right. have offices in, in a lot of states. So we're rolling out to a company this week that has 15 offices in you know Nebraska, Alabama, right. California. Right. Okay. Did you have like, did you have any particular goals when you started, or was it just like let's let's just see where this? Goes? I mean, I know you had to show goals and show projections and stuff like that, but obviously the best laid plans. Dot dot dot. You know, are you? kind of where you wanted to be at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think the vision is always to, you know, create a, 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 a site, kind of a one-stop shop, a digital clinic, so to speak, um, where women can get the best access to information and services. Um, so it could be a online prescription, it could be a referral to a doctor, it could be a, you know, a maternity program that they get, um, but really get into the deep areas of where women's health care is underserved and, and, and present a modern solution for all of it. Because really, the dysfunction of the healthcare system falls on the female's shoulders. You know, women drive 80% of healthcare decisions. So, so yeah, so in that sense, you know, every we, we get patient notes every week about various things that we've helped them with. Um, I mean, I got one last week where a girl said we prevented her from killing herself. I mean, maybe yeah. that's a little intense for this podcast, yeah. but but uh, but that's that's incredible. So from that sense, absolutely, because we're helping tens of thousands of women get care that that 
that they need. Um, and this, you know, this now this 15 month program that we're that we've created and now we're now selling to help support women through pregnancy, through postpartum and back to work. I mean, talk about underserved postpartum mm-hmm. and back to work is so underserved. And again, it's it's from a larger kind of societal standpoint. This is where, you know, women really get the short end of the stick. And it's a it's a health issue just as much as uh, anything else. Right. And yet, and uh, un- unfortunately, it looks like it's going to get worse now um, with. I, OK, so I, I you know, where I'm going here, um, you know, Tom Price, anti-choice, like to defund, defund Planned Parenthood, get rid of the ACA, um, et cetera, et cetera. ACA provides IUDs for women. Uh, like, are you experiencing any chatter in the system already about people having anxieties around? Oh, absolutely. I mean, our, our doctors have been reporting higher IUD rates for women coming in. Our therapists are reporting stress and depression. I think this just goes to show you that we need a for-profit, highly profitable women's health company that is patient-centric and is 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 you know is built in the name of, of what women actually need. Um, and I think across the world, there are issues um, in, in, in lots of different cultures where women's health is secondary t- to healthcare, and that's crazy. Uh, and that actually leads me to my next question, which is, I mean, is this is this an American-centric solution, or can this be? Do you have plans for you know global domination? Is this applicable anywhere? So we are already uh, delivering appointments to aid workers in Africa who are American. Wow. Um, spearheaded, my, a friend of mine works for the UN, so she's been giving out a lot of um, kind of you know sending Maven around to a, a lot of her colleagues. Um, so we, we have a, a you know that that's exciting and that's an, a partnership area in the future. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So I think we're, you know we're really focused, laser focused on on this Maven maternity product for the next uh, you know two two years at least. Um, but a lot of companies are international. So eBay, Google, Facebook, they're all international companies where our providers can provide on-demand access you know to lactation support, to therapy, to women's health physical therapy. Therapy, uh, you know, across across the world. So that's kind of foray one. But then, um, you know, I worked in London for a while, and some of our investors are are from the Middle East, and that's a huge area where Maven needs to be because health at home makes total sense. When in a lot mm. of cultures, women don't leave their home, and when they do leave their home and go to the doctor, um, you know, sometimes their husband comes with them, and they're not honest, and they can't mm-hmm. have a, you know an honest patient provider relationship. So mm. I hope that eventually, and and there are you know my friends and investors who are Middle Eastern have always said, okay, whenever you want to bring Maven to Egypt and Jordan and you know these these various countries that you know the United. Arab Emirates, please, please let us know. So I would love to use that. And and whether that's part of the Maven Foundation, which is, you know, the the nonprofit arm of our business, or whether that's actually just through Maven remains to be seen. But it's something that I I like to think about, but we wouldn't execute on anytime soon. Like, what would be the obstacle to doing this in Egypt or Jordan at this point? Honestly, it's it's just this is a new behavior. So we would need partners on the ground to uh, to, to to basically train women that this is okay, and 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 so we would just have to invest resources in it. And we're a tiny team at the moment, right. so we're we're totally focused on corporate America and kind of women in the workplace and better healthcare for women there. But the second that that's kind of you know in a in a steady state, uh, there's yeah, there's a lot of different with time. Things we there's can a lot do. of world to conquer. Yes. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love the most about this podcast is that you know we're by and large dealing with entrepreneurs who are growing companies and, and the story is still being written. So um, 
you'll be one of the people we'll have to have to bring back as uh, as we're talking about the expansion uh, into uh, you know into other countries and yeah. other demographics and stuff like that. We often have the opposite. I have the opposite problem of a lot of my friends who are entrepreneurs, which is that our market is so wide open right. <laughs> and we have no direct competitors right. in various parts of the business that uh, that it's just all about, okay, we need to stay focused on profitability um, because that will allow us to achieve all of our longer term goals. Well, congrats on uh, on your path so far so far, and, uh, and look forward to, to tracking in the future. Thanks. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.